there's um, something that all of us here have in common. If you're in E1 and E2, you're staying in this morning. If you've uh, been sitting in church pews for uh, as long as you can remember and you've developed extra thickness on your uh, behind to cope with that, uh, it, it doesn't matter who you are, at the beginning or at the end of life, all of us face trouble of one kind or another. And uh, just in case you've misunderstood... Being a Christian is not an immunization policy against facing difficulties in our lives. The great apostle Paul, the most fervent, the most history-changing, the most impacting-making Christian maybe ever, wrote about his life after he'd become a Christian. I've been in prison more frequently been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, at sea, from false brothers. I've labored and tall. I've gone without sleep. I've been hungry and thirsty, gone without food. I've been cold and naked. He answers to the name of Lucky, after he'd become a Christian. How does that work? Jesus himself had trouble from his earliest days. He was still no more than a babe in arms, and his parents scooped him up, and they fled to Egypt because of a dictator that was pursuing him. Why to kill him? And then he'd only lived to the age of 33, and by doing good, he'd so annoyed people around him that they nailed him to a cross. If that's what happened to Jesus who was the Christ, and if that's what happened to Paul after he became a Christian, what makes us think our lives will be trouble-free? To avoid doubt, Jesus says, each day has enough troubles of its own. And just in case they didn't get the message, he says it's very simple, in this world you will have trouble. The question is not whether you will have it or not. And how sad that sometimes in our Christian uh, kind of faith and community, we make uh, trouble as a faith marker. You know, if you're living life without any problems, your faith must be really high and really strong. You must be a great Christian. And if you're bombarded with life's difficulties, then somehow you aren't. How dare we do that? The issue is not whether you face these things, but the issue is how will you cope with them? Will you conquer them, or will they conquer you? The Bible is full of people who faced all kinds of difficult situations and with God conquered them rather than they being conquered by them. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not that one has trouble and the other doesn't, but the difference will be how you handle it. And one of the greatest testimonies there ever will be in your life will be how, when trouble comes, you deal with it. That will be the thing people will look for more than anything else. People will see you facing what they have faced and will want to know how you did it. How did you walk that path of suffering, disappointment, conflict, whatever, with such composure and courage and confidence and with such character? Troubles are often our greatest testimony. 
One of the best descriptions uh, is this in Proverbs, I think. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Doesn't mean there isn't any trouble, but in one's inner being, remaining untouched by it. In the, in the face of adversity, in the face of things going wrong, how untouched are you? How do you maintain your inner beauty? How do you remain tender-hearted? How do you radiate God's joy and peace at difficult times? But often it's so different, isn't it? Often we are profoundly touched when trouble comes. We get angry and bitter and resentful. We lash out at those around us. We become irritable and selfish and self-absorbed. Or is that just me? Is that just me? No. That's good, because Claire's not coming back in for another 20-odd minutes. So, I... One of the greatest embodiments of this is uh, Stephen in the New Testament. Stephen was a man, the Bible says, that was full of God's grace and power. We need men like that, don't we? All the women say, yes. So what? So what? Because in Acts chapter 6, when these words were written, or, or when they were written about, all is well in Stephen's world. It's easy to be full of grace when things are going well. But we didn't need to wait too long to understand whether Stephen's grace was a kind of, it's a good day kind of grace. You know that sort of grace? It's good and it's graceful because the day is good. But if the day went bad, then the grace would somehow disappear. We don't need to wait too long because the same people that got so angry with Jesus began to get angry with Stephen. And after Stephen had preached one day, it says they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. At this... They covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Where's his grace now? This is what it says. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees, and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he died. Wow. Wow. That's the way to handle trouble. Here was a man untouched by the most offensive offense. And what a testimony it was. It says that a man named Saul, later to become the Paul I was talking about some moments ago, says Saul was there giving his approval. I wonder whether God's work in Saul's life got unleashed at this point, don't you? That there in that dying man was something Paul, or Saul then, for all his education and for all his religious paraphernalia, he simply didn't have. He knew he didn't live life like that, untouched by trouble. You see, what happens, what happened in Stephen doesn't make any sense. At the prime of his life, he's dragged and publicly humiliated and shamed and killed, just like they would do with a murderer or a blasphemer. Yet it doesn't touch him. He even prays. He exhibits what the Bible calls God's peace. 
God's peace isn't what we normally talk about when we talk about peace that's here today and gone tomorrow. God's peace, the Bible says, transcends all understanding. In other words, it's a peace that doesn't make any sense, given the circumstances. It's a peace that doesn't equate to what's going on around you. It's a peace that remains irrespective of what's happening. So, are you handling trouble like a Christian? This Harvest Sunday is a reminder that God has provided you and me with everything that we need for this life. My God will supply all, all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Even in trouble, even in disappointment, even in really difficult and painful times. Paul said that. You couldn't say of him, well, he didn't understand what it is to have a hard time. He says that because his life was rosy. Manifestly, it was not rosy, was it? And yet he says towards the end of it all, my God will meet all your needs. That's been my experience, even in trouble. In fact, Jesus would say, look at the flowers, fantastic flowers. Look at the flowers that grow in the field. And remember, if God does that kind of thing, how much more will he care for you? So we're in Joshua chapter 3, and we're discovering how there the people of God learned to receive and to know God's provision even as they went through a difficult time. You see, as we begin chapter 3, the people of God are camped by the side of a river. And if they're going to go any further, they have to cross the river. And it says quite simply this, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. It's flood season. In flood season, the river Jordan became powerful and treacherous. It became anything up to a mile wide in flood season. Normally, it would be about a hundred yards, but now a mile wide in places. And there it was, and they had no idea how they would get across it. How many of us have been by the edge of a river like that? We found ourselves facing something that we never thought we could get through. We found ourselves on the edge of something we never thought we could get across. The problem just seemed so large, it seemed the nearer we get, the more it would overwhelm us. And we wouldn't even go close for fear that it would sweep us away. Many of us have been on the edge of a river like that in our lives. And maybe this morning you're here in church and it feels like you're sitting right on the banks of this river that's flowing so fast you've got no idea how you're going to get through it. The moment you get close, it'll just sweep you away. And that's how it feels. It's powerful, it's overwhelming. You feel out of control as you look at this river. Well, here's a story to encourage and to strengthen you. And to teach all of us what we must do to travel trouble well. To teach all of us how to receive God's provision for our problems. You see, the Bible offers such great promise. That God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And yet it's all too easy to feel desperately alone. And to feel that God is nowhere to be seen. So how do we know God's provision in times of trouble. How do we receive his help? Well, firstly, we must concentrate 
on God. We must concentrate on God. This is the first and most important step to know God's provision in your life. It says that when you see the Ark of the Covenant, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. That's what they were supposed to do. When they saw the Ark of the Covenant, it was a very simple box, although for them a very sacred box, that had in it the two tablets of stone on which Moses had written the Ten Commandments. But even more importantly than that, this box symbolized God's all-powerful presence. To know God's provision, you need to look to this all-powerful God. The biggest problem when we face our problems is that usually we're looking the wrong way. A few weeks ago, we talked about the need to meditate on God's Word. Anyone here for that? Both of you. And we uh, looked at how we, we, we need to think about God's Word, reflect on God's Word, listen to God's Word, study it, talk about it, all of that stuff. Why? In order to draw from God's Word the nourishment that we need to feed our lives. Remember that? Coming back to you, three people. Remember that? How many of you said, I can't do that, I'm no good at meditating, Oh, you're fibbing now. Thank you very much. God bless you. I can't do that. I'm no good at meditating, but I bet you can, because all of us are far better at meditating than we think. You see, I suspect that when you've got a problem, it's all you think about. In different ways, you look at it, talk about it, mull it over, reflect on it, And do you know what you're doing as you are meditating on your problem? Well, it's the problem that you are doing as you meditate on your problem. Because as you are meditating on your problem, you are drawing from your problem all the nourishment it has to offer. You are allowing your problem and all its negativity and all its fear and all its pain to feed your life. And then having lived on the diet of a particular problem, having set your mind and heart on it, having meditated on it, thought about it and reflected upon it and talked about it in lots of different ways, we suddenly wonder why it's becoming so overwhelming. Why at night does it seem worse? Probably because without any other distractions, you've thought about it, reflected upon it, molded over, chewed the cud, and you've drawn from your problem every bit of negativity you possibly could, and you feel dreadful. Who wouldn't? If you want to get through, we have to stop feeding on our trouble and focusing on God. If they did not understand that they needed to look to God's powerful presence, they never would have left camp because the river was raging. They'd been at camp for a while. And while they were there, the noise of the river thundering past was a constant companion. They knew it well. They needed to shift their gaze. And some of us this morning need to shift our gaze. And we need to help each other in this. It's one of the really important tasks of our small groups. It's so easy just to stay focused on the problem. We talk about it, we listen and we empathize with one another, we reflect it back to one another. All that's really important, don't misunderstand me. 
But if we don't help one another to lift our gaze to the God of the heavens, to the God who has my life safe in his hands, to the God who is all-powerful and holds me in his strong grip, unless we lift our gaze to him, we leave one another with our troubles, don't we? Hello? They needed to look the right way. And if we can together get a vision for our great and awesome God, whose love is unending and whose power has no limits, if we can look to Him, then for a start, excuse me, then for a start, those things in our lives that seem so big begin, compared to this huge God that's now filling our gaze, they begin to seem just a little bit smaller. And that is the crucial point. The necessary point to know God's provision is to see God towering over your problem. That's the only place where you can see God providing for you and bringing you through. If you cannot see God towering over your problem, if your problem towers, there is nothing or no one in whom you can trust, not even God. That's why that chorus rings true. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Has the problem changed? No, not at all. But when you look into his wonderful face, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The problem's changed? No. Have they got smaller? No, but as you see the glory of Jesus, his towering might and strength, so what we face fits its rightful place before the light of his glory. And it strangely dims. For as long as they looked at the river, they were trapped. They needed to look to God. And as they concentrate on God, notice two things that come out of this passage. Firstly, God goes first. When they broke cramp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. How cool is that? God goes first in your trouble. If your trouble is work, God goes first tomorrow morning. If your trouble is home, God's already there. If only we would see him there. And so on and so forth. And more than that, he's right in the middle of it with you. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by. One of the things Satan tries to do is to isolate us in the midst of our trouble. Here you are with all your big troubles and God, even if he is that powerful, well, he's stuck up in heaven somewhere. No. Where is God as they cross the Jordan? Right in the middle of what's going on. Where was God as they stoned Stephen? Giving Stephen a vision of his glory and his light. Where is God when the psalmist says, you've got to walk through that dark valley? Psalmist says, you are right there with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Where is God when Daniel's three mates, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego, are thrown into the fire? Where's God? How many people did they see walking in the fire? Four. How many people were thrown in? Who's the fourth one? Jesus, hallelujah. Where's God today in the midst of what's going on? He's right there, everybody. He's right there. Because, you know, he'll never leave you or forsake you. 
That's what Joshua needed to understand, or he never would have made it. That's what we need to understand, or we'll struggle to make it too. Concentrate on God. Secondly, we must consecrate ourselves. If we want to know God's provision in difficult times, we must, what on earth does this mean? Consecrate, what a naff religious word. Let's try and understand it together. We understand the next bit though, first of all, about God doing amazing things. Would you like some of that in the midst of your trouble? The Lord to do amazing things. Well, God says, through Joshua, this is the deal. I'll do amazing things. I'll concentrate on that. If you concentrate on the first bit, consecrate yourselves. What does that mean? It simply means getting yourself right with God. You know in a relationship if things aren't right, don't you? Sometimes we live for a long time in our stupidity with things in our relationships not being right. But sometimes you know there are things that are wrong between you and somebody else and you've just got to sort it out. Consecrating yourself is sorting out your relationship with God. Getting everything that's wrong between you both out the way. And given that everything's right with God, it's a bit one-sided, I'm afraid, but that's just how it goes. Getting ourselves right with God. That is the secret of unleashing God's power in whatever difficulty you are facing. Getting yourself right for God. Getting our lives cleansed before Him. You see, in our lives, especially in times of trouble, we just want to be happy. We just want to break. And God says, actually, there's something better than being happy. I want to make you holy. I want to make you holy. And actually, it's holiness that we want because the fruit of holiness, when there's holiness in our lives, we will have that peace that I talked about some moments ago. We will have a joy that does not dim in the midst of life's trials. And it's your cleanliness of heart that will unleash God's power. So what things in your life do you need to put right? If you want to see God do amazing things, I do. What things do you need to put right in your heart? Trouble is, when we're faced with difficulties and problems, it's the last thing we want to think about, isn't it? We know there are things in our lives that need dealing with, but somehow we've got no energy for them because our energy is going into meditating on our problems. And we think to ourselves, and maybe we say to God, when this is all over, then I'll sort myself out. If the Israelites, camped on the wrong side of the Jordan, had said to themselves, hey, when this is all over and we're settled in the promised land, then I'll sort myself out. They never would have got there. Today's the day to sort yourself out. Tomorrow's the day that God will do amazing things. Can't say fairer than that, really. For God who loves us and longs to bless us. But as long as Satan can distract you with all that's going on, keep your focus on your troubles. He's got you. He's got you. What needs sorting out? And if that's one of our responsibilities, maybe part of the next one uh, adds to our understanding here. We must carry out God's word. Joshua said to the Israelites, before God's going to do anything today, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. See, often in trouble, the only thing we're listening to is the trouble itself. And we let it become the focus of our lives. And when we stop listening to God, we stop obeying God. It doesn't take long, does it, for a child to stop obeying when they stop listening. Not listening. And we live like that. God, I'm not listening. 
not listening. When we stop listening, we stop obeying. And the worst thing about it is we begin to justify our wrong behavior. I know I shouldn't be like this, but given all that's happening with me just now, well, that's just the way it's going to be. I know I shouldn't behave like this, but with this going on, can't help it. I know my attitude is wrong, but if you had to face the kind of thing I'm facing with now, then your attitude would be wrong too. And we justify ourselves. Does that unleash God's power? No. How could they walk across the Jordan following this symbol of God's presence, this Ark of the Covenant, in which were the Ten Commandments? The ten major headings for living God's way on God's earth. How could they say, we're not too worried about those things in the box, but we're going to go anyway? How nonsensical would that be? Unless they were living it in their lives, then it all meant nothing. Unless we're listening and obeying, it all means nothing. You see, God's looking for a people that will do what he says, even when the pressure's on. It's like Stephen, isn't it? It was easy for Stephen to do what what God says in Acts chapter 6. Very difficult to live God's way in Acts chapter 8. The best way out of your problem is to live God's way. And if you're facing a difficulty today, today's the day more than any day for you to show God that you really trust him. Doing his things when things are fine doesn't really prove that you trust him. But to go his way when the chips are down says something different altogether, doesn't it? And look what they had to do. They had to put their feet in the Jordan. Before anything would happen, they had to put one foot into this mighty flowing river that would sweep them away. Why does God leave it to the 11th hour? Do you notice that? All the time God steps in, but it's always the 11th hour. That's my justification for living late most of life. God's like that. He doesn't get there in plenty of time, ever. You know, sometimes you turn up at church for a service and people are there three hours before just in case the traffic. God isn't like that. He's the 11th hour, the last minute. He swoops in and saves the day. Why? Because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to know that if he says he'll be there, he'll be there. That's where my analogy with my life falls down. He's different. If he says he's there, he'll be there. 11th hour, the very last minute, he wants you to trust him. And you can imagine these priests saying, no way, we know what that river's like. We know the banks are steep and treacherous. We know that as soon as one foot goes in that muddy, sinking soil, we're gone. No way. But they didn't. They took God at his word and said, God might turn up at the very, very, very last minute, but I'm going to trust the God who's always there just at the right time. And they put their foot in the water, and what happened? The water's banked up. Just like God said. You see, when Daniel's mates were going around saying, we're only going to worship God, there was no real honor for them. But when they said, if you do that one more time, you'll get thrown into the furnace. The whole thing changes, doesn't it? Will you trust him when the pressure's on? Will you trust him when the pressure's on? As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. What a great moment. What a great moment when God made their problem look really small, actually. What a great moment when the river that seemed so raging, so powerful, so all-consuming, suddenly stood to attention because God had spoken and God was there. It's a wonderful thing in your life and it's a wonderful thing in my life when God brings our trouble to attention, isn't it? 
We look to him and say, God, this is overwhelming me. There's nothing more I can do but to trust in you. And suddenly, as we cleanse ourselves before God, he moves in his power and our trouble stands to attention. Wow. Even the river obeys him. What the disciples said, even the wind and the waves. Wow. So what must we do? We must lastly celebrate all that God has done. Celebrate all that God has done. It was a fantastic thing that God did. And why did God do it? He did it as a testimony to uh, the nations. As a testimony to the nations. The priests who carried the ark stood firm until all Israel passed by, until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. First thing to notice, first thing to notice is that problems come to an end. It's over. God stood there, when? Until they were halfway across. God stayed with them until everyone had passed by and the whole nation completed the crossing. Difficult times don't last forever. The valley of the shadow of death is somewhere you walk through, not stay. It's not our home, just a place you travel through. Secondly, God promises to use your struggle that he moves into, <clears throat> excuse me, for his glory. That's what it says at the end of Joshua 4. He did this, why? So that all peoples might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord. No experience is wasted. God will use your trouble as a testimony to all that he can do. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't mean he wanted it. He doesn't mean it was part of his first plan for your life. But the fact that he uses it is a tremendous thing. Don't believe me. Believe God's word. That's what he promises to do. In all things, God will work to bring out his good purpose for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the last thing, the last thing about getting through struggles with God is this. The last thing. It points to somewhere else. It points us to heaven. See, every time you get through some trouble and every time you get through a dark place, there is a day coming that reminds us that these things will be no more. No more trouble, no more raging rivers, no more fiery furnaces. And every time we come to the end of a particular struggle in our lives, so we've made it, no more. It's a reminder that one day there will be a no more for all no mores. Hallelujah. A no more for all no mores. No more. Over. And the whole nation got to the other side. And all God's people, as we trust him, will get ultimately to the other side where there will be no more. We're going to sing together and then we're going to pray together before the children rejoin us.